invite you to open your Bibles to John's Gospel. This morning we're moving into the fourth chapter, and if you're familiar with John, you know that in the fourth chapter we find the woman at the well. Such a rich, wonderful passage. A lengthy passage. It spans some 42 verses start to finish with her account, and it would be impossible to cover the entire passage and do it justice in one sermon. And what I really wanted to do was just to do the first six verses to to get us prepared for the heart of the passage, but I hesitated at first because I wasn't sure that there would be enough meat for us to to feast on in just those introductory verses. They're the kind of verses that you could easily just read right over and not give any attention to. But as soon as I dug into them this week, I knew we'd do well. Uh, And I want to show you a couple of really important things about our Savior and about our salvation, even from, uh, from these introductory verses. So stand if you're able. It's just six verses of John chapter 4, and these are the very words of God. Now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. May God bless the teaching and preaching of his inspired, inerrant, infallible, and authoritative word. Let's pray together. Father, you've not wasted anything. You've not wasted any of the words in Scripture, though we sometimes are prone to. But Lord, even in verses that are just setting the stage, we see the beauty of our Savior. We see the need, the common need for our salvation. Would you bless us in these moments? Holy Spirit, would you come and be our teacher? Would you be our guide? Would you show us and reveal to us Jesus from these verses, our beautiful Savior? Would you take the mystery of the cross and reveal it to us afresh that we might see and be satisfied in him and in him alone? We ask in his name and for his sake. Amen. Please be seated. Two big headings this morning that you'll find in the worship folder in that outline that we'll work underneath. First is Jesus, our sovereign Savior. And the second is that Jesus is the Savior of all. To begin with number one, how do we see Jesus' sovereignty in these introductory verses? It might not even register for us when we, when we read, especially verses 1 and 3, about his movement. We say, okay, well, that's, that's no big deal. He went from one place to another. What's so special about that? But there's, there's a reason that he leaves the one place and heads to another. Why would Jesus finding out 
that the Pharisees found out he was making more disciples than John, why would that cause him to leave? I want you to think about the big picture. The Pharisees, these religious leaders, they're already not very excited about John the Baptist and the big crowds that he's drawn and the disciples that he's gathered around him, the followers that he has amassed, and it's Jews that are following him, and it's Jews that are being baptized, admitting their need for further cleansing than they've already received by Jewish ritual and rite. The religious establishment is not happy. So imagine how even less happy they are becoming to find out that Jesus was also baptizing, and he's attracting even larger crowds than John the Baptist did. So they're not excited about Jesus' popularity. Well, What's the big deal? So what? Well, if you know the story, the religious leader's lack of excitement will grow. And will turn into hatred. And their hatred will consume them. And their hatred will lead to plotting and scheming and planning to kill Jesus. But, Jesus as the sovereign Savior, was not at their mercy of their planning and their plotting. He would determine when the precise moment of his death would come. He would determine how often their plans would fail and when they would finally succeed in both arresting and killing him. They didn't have the upper hand. Jesus did. He was not a victim of something beyond his control. No, the sovereign Savior willingly laid down his life. And I hope you understand that part of the story. That aspect of it that this was not some plan of God gone horribly awry. I'll send my son. And and he's in shock in heaven, wringing his hands that they're hating him and planning to kill him. That's not the case at all. This is a plan that was made before the foundation of the very world. Carried out to completion at the exact right time. And this is a theme that we're going to see again and again in this gospel. And usually it is accompanied by the phrase, his hour had not yet come. Back in chapter 2 at the wedding at Cana when there was a problem and mama wanted him to get involved. You remember his terse reply to his mama? Woman, my hour has not yet come. Later on in several places, chapter 7 is one of them. They were seeking to arrest him, but none could lay a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. We'll see this repeated again and again. He was in control. He would be the one to willingly lay down his life, and it says so explicitly in John chapter 10, verse 18. He's he's talking, no one takes it from me, 
but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, <laughs> and I have authority to take it up again. Right? Those are the words of one in control, our sovereign Savior. Even Paul would pick up on, on how crucial the timing of this was. In, in Romans 5, he says, For while we were still weak, right, in, in our powerlessness at just the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Now, this little parenthetical verse 2. I just love John's precision. He's being so careful here. He knows people are going to read what he writes and scrutinize it and, and probably try to catch him somewhere. And so he's, he's precise. He's careful. He says, Jesus, in a sense, had been baptizing because his disciples, no doubt at his command, had actually been doing the baptizing. I'm sure it was a case of Jesus saying, all right, you guys need to repent and you need to be baptized. And if there are any willing participants, head right over here. And my boys over here are going to take care of that for you. So Jesus was baptizing. He's commanding that they receive this right. And why do you think that was that he didn't do the baptizing? We're not told explicitly. We just have to, to guess. But think about it. So many people coming to Jesus. It's probably not possible that he baptized them all himself. And if only some of the people got baptized by Jesus, oh boy. Can you imagine petty people like ourselves saying, oh, I got the real thing. Jesus baptized me. You just got baptized by one of the other guys. So perhaps in his sovereign wisdom, Jesus has delegated the administration of baptism. That, that's a, a relatively minor display of his sovereignty, but worth considering. Something much larger we see in verse 4. All right, they, they found out. I, I, he doesn't want things to escalate too quickly. He's in control of the timing, so I'm going to leave. I'm going to leave Judea. I'm going to head to Galilee. And verse 4 says, he had to pass through Samaria. Well, that's not exactly true, at least in one sense. If you wanted to head from Judea to Galilee... You didn't have to go through Samaria. In fact, lots of folks made the trip without going through Samaria. Some folks loathed the idea of going through Samaria so much that they would cross the Jordan River and head up the east side a much longer route to avoid going through Samaria. That way they wouldn't risk being defiled by those terrible, unclean, ungodly Samaritans. Which means we should ask the question, what's the big deal about Samaria and the Samaritans? And it's important that we consider this before we deal next week with the Samaritan woman who Jesus encounters at the well. In Jesus' day, Samaria was no longer a political entity of its own, but it was still certainly set apart historically and religiously. 
Samaritans are an interesting group. They would have considered themselves to be Jews. We're Jews. The Orthodox Jews, um, oh no, you're not. You're Gentiles. You're outsiders. You are unclean. See, almost a thousand years earlier, God's people, the nation of Israel, was, was a mess. So much so that it split into two kingdoms, north and south. And so the northern kingdom, Israel, whose capital was at one time Samaria. Well, they were conquered by the Assyrians in 722 B.C. And the majority of the Israelites, the important Israelites, were deported. But there were some stragglers who remained. And so when the Assyrians come in and populate this land and these straggler Israelites who are left, well, they intermarry. And there's a mixing of these two peoples and a mixing of all kinds of religious belief. So that what you're left with is a people who, they don't really belong anywhere. The Jews view them as half-breeds. And if that sounds harsh, it was. And their religion is admittedly very different from anything in Orthodox Judaism, it's this odd mixture where they have the scriptures, but only the Pentateuch. They reject all of the, the writings and the, and the prophecy. And they decide they want their own temple. Instead of the temple in Jerusalem, we're going to build one at Mount Gerizim. And so they do. <laughs> and the hostility is so great between Jews and Samaritans that the Jews go and tear their temple down. So needless to say, there's a lot of bad blood between these two groups. So no, Jesus didn't have to go through Samaria. Lots of folks wouldn't have been caught dead going through Samaria. So the necessity mentioned here must be something other than geography. Some type of divine, sovereign necessity perhaps because of the woman he knew he would encounter at that well. See, another important theme in this gospel that we will see over and over again is that Jesus is in control of who comes to him, of how he draws them to himself, of how he loses none of them, how he holds them secure forever, how he will return and come back for them. And the sovereign Savior knew that one of his own, one of the ones that he would draw to himself and hold tight forever would be at that well that day, and that's why he had to go through Samaria. It was no accident. It was no coincidence. Jesus is the sovereign Savior. And if you belong to him, if your children belong to him, he will come after you. He will go after them. He will draw you to himself. He will draw them to himself. And he will never let go. And he will come again.
That's the most important piece to see about our sovereign Savior. Can I suggest one other thing? It's also beautiful, though I will admit its beauty pales in comparison to that first. Something else that's going on here, I think, with Jesus having to go through Samaria. For your homework, I want you to read the second half of Ezekiel 37. We go to the first half of Ezekiel 37 a lot. That's the valley of dry bones, right? Prophesy over these bones, right? And then we see the miracle happen. But the second half is, is also interesting because the Lord is instructing Ezekiel uh, to act out one of these things that he often does. Take these two sticks, he says. One stick represents the southern kingdom. One stick represents the northern kingdom. And I want you to wrap them up together as if they were one stick. And he prophesies and he says, one day these two split apart kingdoms are going to be reunited under one king. That day, Jesus had to go through Samaria. He had to find this Samaritan woman. He was going to be the Savior, the King of both. Now, all of this talk of sovereignty, of course, highlights the divinity, the divine nature the godness of of Jesus. He is God. We saw so beautifully expressed in chapter 1. 100% divine. But he's also, at the same time, 100% human. And we find our sovereign Savior at the end of this introduction, in verse 6, wearied from his journey. And we'll see next week, thirsty as well. Now, this isn't pretend. It's not for effect. It's not just so that we can have the encounter encounter at the well. No, he was wearied from his journey. He was thirsty. He was a real man with real thirst, with real weariness. And so this actually leads us into how he is the Savior of all. Now, we study God's Word. Obviously, it is important to look at the content of what the verses say, right? But if you've been in our adult Sunday school class lately, see what I did there again? You'll also know that the context of the verses can be equally important. Not just what the verses say, but where they say what they say. What came before these verses? What comes after these verses? That can shed just as much light on the content, the context. Where is this happening? Well, this dialogue in chapter 4 between Jesus and this woman at the well comes after the dialogue he has in chapter 3 with a man named Nicodemus. Now, John's already told us at the end of his gospel, he tells us, he says, look, I've had to be selective here. Right? It's not possible. There's not a book big enough to contain everything that he did. I've had to pick and choose. And he picked and he chose with a purpose. And not only what he chose, but how he arranged it, what he put next to each other. Divinely inspired. And I don't think it's an accident that the Samaritan woman follows right after Nicodemus. Could there be a greater contrast Nicodemus, obviously a male, 
He's a Jew. He, he's important, right? He, he's, a, he's a VIP. Uh, he's a religious ruler. In fact, the names that get used for his type of ruling, uh, he's a ruler of the rulers. Moral, well-respected, learned. And then we have this other gal. She's female. A Samaritan. She's a nobody. We're not even given her name. She's just Samaritan woman. We'll find out next week. Many of you already know. She's immoral. Rather than well-respected, she's got no reputation other than a bad one. And John places them side by side in his gospel. And shows us how they both need Jesus. So if you, if you thought that this point in the outline, Jesus, Savior of all, only deals with ethnicity or race or nationality, you've only uncovered a small little part of the miracle here. Yes, that's important that Jesus is a Savior, not just for his own people, not just for the Jews, but for the whole world. Yes, that is important. But it's deeper than that. And it actually hits closer to home. Because I don't think we're necessarily all that concerned with race and ethnicity and, and nationality when it comes to salvation. But what does hit closer to home, we get at when we see how important water is in this situation, this dialogue, this passage. The, the important place that thirst plays. Jesus is thirsty. And that's going to lead to being able to talk to the Samaritan woman about her thirst and how she's tried to satisfy that thirst. And I think that's why these two accounts are placed side by side. Because actually, Nicodemus is thirsty too. We're all thirsty. We're all craving something that will cause life to have meaning, to be full, satisfying, rewarding. That is something common to all. That is universal. We, we sang about it in, the, in that hymn. All my life long, I had panted for a drink from some cool spring that I hoped would quench the burning of the thirst I felt within. Poor I was. I sought for riches, something that would satisfy, but the dust I gathered round me only mocked my soul's sad cry. The thirst is universal. The difference comes in what we turn to to try to quench that thirst. Some turn to religion. Nicodemus turned to a strict following of all the rules. As a Pharisee, he was a religious expert and perfectionist. And so satisfaction for him would come from 
following all the rules and doing a bang-up job doing it. But others seek to quench their thirst through irreligion. Not following all the rules. In fact, casting them aside. Who needs those? Declaring freedom, autonomy from the rules. Satisfaction, we sometimes think, will come from ignoring them altogether. And what Jesus would spend his entire earthly ministry trying to get folks to see is that neither path can satisfy. See, so often the, the, the culture, the, the common message out there would say, abandon irreligion for religion. When in fact, neither path has the power to ultimately satisfy. The rules, they can't be kept. They're too difficult. No one can. But nor can they be cast aside. Because they're the Father's good and and, and perfect will. Jesus himself came to fulfill them, not abolish them. And so that's why what Jesus comes to do is to say no to both of those. No to religion, no to irreligion, and to give us a third way. It's not slavishly adhering to the law, nor is it wantonly ignoring it. But it's looking in faith to Him as the only perfect law keeper who Himself paid the penalty for our rebellion and law-breaking. See, see, that's what the cross is all about. And at the end of the day, here's where we sort of need to divide this room in half because we're all going to tend toward one direction or the other. We all need to be reminded that there's no one so religious, so good, so moral, that they're beyond the need of the sovereign Savior. And the other half of the room needs to be reminded that there's no one so immoral, so bad, too far gone, that you're beyond the reach of this sovereign Savior. The Savior who must go through Samaria. He had to. To find her. To find you. So that one day we can all sing together the end of that hymn. Hallelujah. He has found me. The one my soul so long has craved. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you are our sovereign Savior, and we all need you. We praise you for your sovereign determination to go after and to find and to draw every single one of your sheep. To lose none of them, to hold them tight until the end, and to return for us. Oh, praise you, our sovereign Savior.
And Father, I pray that that reminder would ring true in each of our hearts in the way that it needs to ring that no one's good enough and no one's too far gone. You're ready to save. You're ready to redeem. You're ready to restore. Holy Spirit, would You draw even now Jesus' own sheep to Him. We ask in His powerful name. Amen. Would you stand down?